This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show about television and movies from the ones on the big screen to whatever it is you might be streaming. My name is Lisa Kovacevic. I'm sitting in the anchor chair tonight and opposite me on the panel is Andrew Delaney. Hey, Andrew. Uh, good evening. Nice to be here on a Monday. It is. Thanks for jumping in. Andrew, I, um, Andrew's kindly stepped into panel for me um, and you... Normally do it for Dave Graney on a Tuesday, is that right? That's right. Um, and I may have to call upon you later in the show if things go south. Oh, but... we can always pat it out. Thank you. You'll be right. <laughs> yes. Big show today. Big show today. And why might they go south? Because tonight we're going north with interviews coming in from Finland and beyond. And by beyond, I mean Tokyo, as later in the show we'll be joined by Tokyo-based Australian filmmaker Adrian Francis, who'll be speaking to us about his documentary Paper City that focuses on the survivors of the World War II firebombing of Tokyo. Although all too little of it has really been documented, it was the most destructive air raid in human history. And that is screening as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. But if you live outside of Melbourne, Happening right across the country this month is the Scandinavian Film Festival, which showcases some of the best new cinema from our Nordic friends. The festival features exciting dramas, comedies, and of course, crime thrillers from Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, and Denmark. These films explore culture, history, and life in the Nordic region. Uh, and joining us on the show tonight from that crisp part of the world, we have not one but two Finnish filmmakers discuss- discussing their respective films. The first is the film Compartment Number no. 6, which is the Cannes Film Festival Grand Prix winner and Golden Globe nominee. It's a warming and unexpected tale of adventure and human connection from Juho Kusuman. You may have seen his previous film, The Happiest Day in the Life of Olimaki. Compartment number six is an unconventional love story, however, that takes place as two strangers share a winter train journey through the Arctic Circle. And to tell us more, and joining us all the way from Finland, is the film's director, Juho Kusuman. Juho, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you. Nice to be here. And you can um, you tell us tell listeners a little bit more about what the film is actually about? Uh, well, I would say in the core of the film is uh, acceptance, but uh, but yeah, like you said, it's a it's a train journey between two strangers and uh, a Finnish student and uh, and a Russian miner, and uh, and uh, yeah, the they have to share this small compartment and uh, it's, it's, it's a long train ride. It is. From Moscow to Murmansk. To yeah. Murmansk, that's right. And it's essentially a road movie. Why did you decide to set it in a train? Well, uh, trains are so much more cinematic than cars. <laughs> that's <laughs> one, one reason. I think this is based on a novel by Rosa Lixom or inspired by a novel because in the end we changed quite a lot. Uh, but uh, I read that novel in more than 10 years ago, and it's set on a train in Soviet Union in the 80s. And I, I really liked it, the novel, and I started to think about this idea of shooting a film really in the train. Uh, not just to make a film that, that the story takes place in a train, but I wanted to make a film that really feels like a train ride. It's very because intimate, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love the feeling of being in the train. That is, uh, it's a big part of the 
film as well. It is. It actually reminded me of older films like Strangers on a Train, that sort of tight intimacy. But I also felt that perhaps um, that you may have experienced that as the filmmaker and the crew as well, because it feels so tight in there. How did you go about shooting it? Uh, well, it was it was uh, interesting to say say at least. It uh, it was really narrow, and even though we were shooting with a white small crew. There was still plenty of us, and uh, every time you need to move, you have to wait that somebody is, you know, giving some space. So everything was really slow. And uh, but in the end, I was really happy that we decided to do it this way because it's really it's part of the film. It is narrow space. <laughs> it's right because it forces the characters together in a way, doesn't it? And they're they're very um, well. I, mean, I think at the start of the film, they feel like very different characters. Um, this is about a Finnish woman who's taking a train journey through Russia, and in a way, it's to impress her very intellectual Russian love interest who doesn't join her on the journey. She then befriends this kind of loose young working class uh, Russian guy on the journey, and this relationship of a different kind develops. For Australians, is there something about the relationship between Finland and Russian Russia, sorry, that is explored here, but that, that may be not as apparent to audiences from, you know, the other side of the globe? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think there is, but it's not. Uh, it's not like anything you really need to know to to understand the film, because the film deals about human connection and and this kind of acceptance of yourself and and uh, and the state of things but uh but yes i mean we have very long close and difficult relationship with with russia we've been under russian regime for uh, 100 years and then now 100 years of independence and and we share a border which is more than 1300 kilometers so we've been we are close and we, we share a lot of things, but we are also really different in many ways. And obviously, we during World War II, when we had a three wars, so uh, the situation, it didn't make things easier. If you... and, uh, and I I feel sorry about like 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 all those things that you you lose when you when war starts, you lose the connection, you lose the uh, ability to see the other one as a human being. And that seems to be the, the fundamental message of the film, to, well, to me anyway. That's something that is not, it's not, not uh, fixed fast. I, I mean, it takes decades. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, definitely there are echoes of, of this kind of a, history and, and, and relationship with, between Finland and Russia, also in the film. And, it, and it's um, largely a Russian language film, and you, of course, are Finnish. Did this pose any difficulties for you? Uh, not, not really. I think film happens so much beyond the words, and it's always dealing about some uh, emotions or ideas that are really difficult to verbalize even when you're speaking Finnish to a Finnish friend it's sometimes very difficult to find the words to explain yourself and uh, 
but here we were i mean the we were speaking finnish and russian and estonian and english but uh but i think the common language was was the cinema and and the the, the things that we can express through cinema and through the gays just like other people watching the other one i think that's the main main uh, thing in film that's always the essence of film you, is, is, two is, people watching each other is that how you see cinema as kind of a leveler that um, speaks to us beyond language yes i think uh, the what makes cinema really special is the, the possibility to see through someone's eyes it's it's uh, the, this this idea of how we see each other is in the core of film because it's it is i mean when you are doing it you are you are watching an actor you are watching it through the camera and then when you are watching the film you are really watching the other one yeah through some kind of a lens, a and, lens and, and yeah. this, that's right and this idea like really for me the core and it's yeah it's it is beyond language it's not like that's right. Yeah, it does. And this film does transcend language. Um, and if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Primal Screen and I'm speaking with Finnish director Juho Kusuman about his new film, Compartment Number no. 6, which is currently on limited national release here in Australia, soon to be wide release. Um, there's there's a, a, a driving narrative through this film. Um, the main actress is, seek, is on a train journey to Mamants to see the petroglyphs. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about the the concept of these ancient representations? Because they they sort of contribute to the essence of a fi- of the film in a way. Um, are they symbolic to you of something bigger? Uh, well, they are and they are not. You know, you know, in one way they are just like MacGuffin, like just so, so reason to go there, uh, but. But uh, there isn't any like clear or precise explanation for for them. But I think this one thing that we were talking about with, with the scriptwriters and also with the actors and and the DOP when we were doing this film that it's it is this like part of the story is that she goes there to see something uh, permanent and. Uh, and because I should because explain, because petroglyphs, if for people that don't know, are ancient markings on rocks, correct? Is yes, yes like, yeah. yeah, like rock carvings yeah. or like paintings. Or, and and um, as he goes there to see them, but actually what he realizes is that actually all those things that are, are not uh, permanent are actually even more valuable like everything is everything is fleeting everything is just like life is just like row of fleeting moments, moments. that's right and, and this is this is the uh, difficulty sometimes when you're trying to hold on something and you try to uh, capture the life you're trying to capture it with uh, photos or with video or 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 rock carvings or whatever but it's it's a weird need to be like immortal. 
That's right. To be remembered. It's um actually I actually enjoyed the fact that this film was set in nineteen ninety roughly, um, because there was a real lack of well, there was no mobile phones. <laughs> so people were a lot more present and in the moment. And so I, I found that a, a refreshing there was there was the space for people to connect more, I think, um, which is possibly something that we've lost. Yes, there is. There was a need for the other one. Like when you were traveling and you you got lost, you really needed to go to someone and to ask, like, "Where am I?" That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and people would take you into their homes for a meal, and you'd never see them again. Yeah, and then this is something like like the idea of traveling has changed quite a lot because we can we can carry our social environment in. Uh, in, in our pockets so it's it's been yeah it's true that was the, the thing like when we even though the novel takes place in the 80s but we we said it in the late 90s and, and but still we're thinking like this is the thing we can change there can't be no like uh uh cell phones or at least no um this um what you call this new new phones yeah <laughs> The, we say right. smartphones, I guess. Um, yeah, smartphones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it had to, well, the film does have this very nostalgic quality. Is is this something that you're intentionally seeking out that nostalgic quality, or does it just come naturally to your filmmaking? I think it's something that seems to be hard to avoid. I, I definitely don't seek it, but it seems to be something that I always track with me. It follows you around. Um, well, it's yeah. working for you, Yuho. Um, thank you so much for your time. I've been speaking with Finnish director Yuho Kusuman about his latest film, Compartment Number no. 6, which is currently on limited national release at independent cinemas, including Palace Nova, Dendi and more. And the film will be in full national release from July 7. Thank you so much, Yuho. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And tonight on Primal Screen, we have not one but two Finnish directors on the show in recognition of the Scandi Film Festival that is happening right across the country this month, showcasing some of the best new cinema from our Nordic friends. The festival features exciting dramas, comedies and crime thrillers. Who doesn't love a bit of Nordic noir? Uh, One of the films headlining the festival is The Woodcutter Story, which centres around Pepe, a woodcutter in an idyllic small town in northern Finland. Over the span of a couple of days, a series of events gradually destroys the quiet and happy life he once had, but Pepe seems unaffected as the ensuing days throw all sorts of chaos, strife and surreal adventure at him. Pepe remains determined to look on the bright side of life, always smiling, always optimistic, while the townsfolk around him continue to question their existence and the meaning of of it all. And coming to us all the way from Finland is the director of the Woodcutter Story, Miko Mulalati. Miko, welcome to Primal Screen. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Oh, I'm so glad I've still got you. I thought I lost you. Um, Mika, we just actually interviewed an old collaborator of yours, Yuho Kusuman, for whom you wrote the screenplay, The Happiest Day in the Life of Olimaki, which was hugely successful, winning the pre uncertain regard at Cannes in 2016. And it was the Finnish entry for the Oscars. Did the success of that film give you the confidence to go about writing and directing your own first feature? Yes, definitely. I mean, it, it made made a big change for all of us, I guess. And uh, it was also a film, uh, Finnish film in Cannes, apart from Kaurismäki, for a long time. So it was a big deal for all of us. Uh, but I guess after that, I really had to decide whether I want to 
keep on writing, which I which I still do, and I, I love writing, uh, and also for other directors. But or to have this, uh, I had this urge to direct myself. So it was a bit of a decision I had to make, like career-wise. Well, but, uh, because you have a background yeah. in poetry, um, you, you've, your first collection was published back in 2003. Um, how did you make that leap from poetry to, to film? Because they each require very dis- different skills, no? Yes, it's true. I mean, I guess it's like I, I started out as a poet. And I mean, that was uh, because I grew up in a small town in the north. And uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, I was into poetry. And I was that guy in the high school who was writing poetry when I was 16 <laughs> in a small town. <laughs> and, and I guess at some point, my, my, my parents, they were really supportive to me all the time. But I think my mom said at some point that I think it would be quite good for you to also maybe think about educating yourself or something like that. A backup and, career. And then I, yes, and then I went to film school. Oh, fantastic. So, and I don't so, know if that was what she had in mind. But. Yeah, but not much of a backup. I know. I, w- I, won't, be, um, I won't be a poet. I'll be an actor. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's maybe not as a secure career, career path. Um, how do you approach script writing then? Because, I mean, it does have a very poetic tone, this film, um, The Woodcutter Story, but it, and it certainly doesn't have a traditional hero's journey structure with a beginning, middle or end. Do you follow certain cinematic guides or is it more of a fluid process for you? Well, I, I think I always, so I believe in this more fluid and organic writing. I think that comes from the poetry because, and also I think uh, being a poet, I think it sometimes it helps you to deal with ambiguity. Because uh, we all know that sometimes films, stories in film, they are very well structured and they keep on using the same patterns. But sometimes there are these films that, or this cinema that kind of steps out of that box. And I've always been fascinated by that. I mean, if you think like old films like Pasolini and Bresson, and and there are always, they, they, they have storytelling, but it's not the, maybe not the same as in some some uh, American thrillers, for example, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. And I, there are similarities, of course, between poetry and, and cinema. And I think it's uh, like my poetry has always been described as very visual. So it kind of makes sense that I, I shifted also to the cinema because, because there is, there is these visual aspects and these, these haunting images that I just don't understand always myself, but I need to kind of explore them through through writing yeah and and on that visual side you shot on location in lapland what was it about that landscape that lent itself to that very surreal quality that you achieve in this film uh, i think yeah it, it's like like a part of the film it's because i grew up there in the in the north of finland and it's very rural it's there's like these small towns and not many people and the winter is very long and harsh and and so of course that I wanted to set my story there because that it's a, it's very familiar to me, but at the same time I also felt that uh, I think I was when I was young and and this endless winter just it just nine months of darkness and and really cold like minus thirty, so it it kind of affects you and and somehow I I felt that there and it's like in my dreams still. So, so I, I also my story was had this mythical quality. So I wanted to kind of portray also that nightmarish winter scenes and put them also in my film. But it's not realistic, obviously. So no, it's more like uh, it's yeah. it's it's heightened and it, and it's absurd. In some ways, it reminded me of Theater of the Absurd. Um, I don't know 
if that is something that is common to um, Finnish storytelling or not. But um, uh, it did have a very um, absurdist tone. And the humour in this film is very dry and deadpan. Was that something you engineered or is that something that is reflective of that rural Finland where you grew up and where this is set? I think it comes from from the from the from the region or the, from the people there because I grew up with this that we are very honest. We don't have that much of a small talk in Finland. So sometimes we can just stay quiet and just drink coffee and nobody's saying anything. And then somebody says something that can be actually quite funny. Yeah. It's very honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, of course, I over exaggerated in in the film, and and but but there is a there is a part part that is very true. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Miko Mululati about his feature film, The Woodcutter Story, which is playing as part of this year's Scandi Film Fest. Um, Miko, to me, the the beauty of this film lies in juxtapositions. There's a sort of drudgery that surrounds the lives of the townsfolk, and yet Pepe, the main character, is such an optimist, uh, and the townsfolk seem like simple working-class people, you know, miners, hairdressers, blue-collar workers, and yet they're all walking around saying profound things about the meaning of life, or at times they're verbalising the subtext of the film it's poetic but it also lends to that sort of deadpan humor that we spoke about and in some ways it reminded me of um Wim Wenders's uh film Wings of Desire where the angels observe and hear the thoughts and prayers of the humans that are wandering around on earth but you just take it that step further where your characters who are leading these simple lives and are asking these very deep existential questions. Um, was was Wim Wenders an inspiration to you or how did you know that that stylistic choice would work? Because it really does. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm very glad to hear it, that it works because, I mean, it was a huge risk and obviously for a first-time director to do something like this. And I really didn't know whether this is going to be my first and last film, but, <laughs> but it's nice to hear that it comes true. But actually, that is very percep- perceptive of you because uh, I... I, I didn't think, I mean, Wim Wenders' film I, I was part of it, but I was more thinking of the writer, Peter Handke, yes. uh, who's, the, who's the screenwriter of that Wings of Desire. And I read this novel by him, and it's called The Left-Handed Wim- Woman. And and I was writing my script already, and then I came across this book. And, and when I read it, I, I, I just knew that this is definitely what I'm going to do, because I, I was trying to do it, but I just didn't have the courage. And because he, in his book and what is also in the Wings of Desire, people are talking the subtext out loud and it makes it very poetic, but it makes it also quite funny. Very because, funny. I mean, we are usually we are just masking what we are actually thinking and we are just kind of playing these social games and nobody's actually saying what is deep inside of us. Yeah. And that's something that I was really interested in. Yeah, and it, and it is very interesting in this film. Um, we've spoken a lot about the surreal tone of the film. Can you talk to us a little bit about your other influences here? For me, that minimalism reminded me a lot of, um, I don't know, Robert Bresson or that quirky absurdity of this snow-covered town reminded me a little bit of the Coen Brothers film Fargo and many of the surreal elements would be at home in the world of David Lynch of course or Franz Kafka who were the biggest influences on your work would you say? Well, well actually you mentioned quite many of those that that were really influential to me and and not only cinema like, and especially like short stories from Kafka mm. uh, with a haunting atmos- atmosphere that uh, he has in them and 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 it's always I think he's he's very existentialist writer he's always dealing with our like humanity trapped some somehow in this existence and this is also the same thing with Bresson that that I find very fascinating and 
And I think it's sometimes I miss that poetic cinema where you can actually step away from the realism and do something a bit crazy. And I, I mean, I love there's a lot of contemporary cinema, which is very different than what I do. But and I love that. But but sometimes it's I, I miss that. Like uh, when I was young, watching like in film archives, we watched Pasolini's like Theorema. And after that, you everybody was like, "What the hell was that?" I mean, I didn't, I didn't understand what happened. And then we went and have a beer and talk about it. And everybody had a different interpretation of the film, but we all love it. So sometimes, sometimes it's nice to do something like that, even nowadays. It is because as I was talking to uh, about your um, fellow countrymen um, before in the previous interview, it, it just transcends language. This kind of cinema, which is what I really, really enjoyed about your film. Um, I've been speaking with Miko. Mulilati, director of The Woodcutter Story, which is the special presentation feature of the 2022 Scandinavian Film Festival taking place across the country from July 12 to August 10. For bookings and more info, you can visit scandinavianfilmfestival.com. Miko, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was nice talking with you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Green, the track um, Sukiyaki, or I Look Up As I Walk, is a song recorded by Japanese crooner Kiyu Sakamoto in 1961. The lyrics tell the story of a man who looks up and whistles while he he's walking so that his tears will not fall. It was written during a time of continued US military presence in Japan, and it expresses the frustration and sadness at the failed efforts of student protesters. And it's connected to the events that preceded it in 1945, when the US military firebombed the city of Tokyo, killing 100 thousand people and destroying a quarter of the city to become the most destructive air raid in history. That history and its continued aftermath excuse me, is the subject of our next film, Paper City. Paper City follows the stories of three victims who, unlike their loved ones, survived. For years, they have campaigned for a public memorial, a museum, and some kind of token compensation for civilians who lost everything. But the Japanese government has refused to formally acknowledge their appeals, and after seven decades, they find themselves cast aside while former soldiers have been treated generously by the state. Uh, tonight we're joined by the film's director, Tokyo-based Australian Adrian Francis. Adrian, welcome to Primal Screen. Thanks very much. Hello from Tokyo. Hello from Tokyo. It's lovely to have you. Adrian, how did you come across these individuals and why was it important for you to tell this story now? I think um, I first, well, when I was growing up um, in Australia, I didn't really know anything about... Uh, how uh, I suppose enemy civilians experience the war. Um, so I, except for the atomic bombs for Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I didn't really know anything about the Japanese civilian experience. And uh, I saw the Errol Morris documentary Fog of War, uh, I don't know, probably about 10 years ago. And that's when I kind of really for the first time understood these facts that you just mentioned about a, a quarter of the city being destroyed and 100,000 people being killed. And so I guess at the beginning, I, I was very shocked by that because I'd already been living here and, you know, I, there's not much talk about it in Tokyo. It's not really part of the city's identity. And so I, I, I kind of was curious as to why that was. Um, and so that was really the starting point for me. And um, I, I guess at first I imagined 
maybe the story was not so prominent because maybe the survivors had, had already passed away. But as I started to look for uh, survivors, I, I, I came across these people who were very open and willing to talk. Um, and I guess who feel that they haven't been listened to so much uh, for the last 70 odd years. And, and it's surprising because they haven't been listened to, it's surprising how humble they are in their protests. Um, and they're also, they acknowledge Japan's part in the war, in the war too. Um, I, on that um, petition handover day, the survivors are sort of gathered outside the court ready to deliver their petition. Um, their argument being that you know, at this time, 72 years ago, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, triggering the Pacific War. And if Japan had have surrendered in 1944, when it was clear that they had lost the Tokyo air raids, um, you know, the Nagoya and Osaka air attacks, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings you mentioned could have been avoided. Um, and so their, their argument is, you know, they're angry at at the state, but then we see this van drive past with speakers attached to it, and the drivers shouting, "Japan didn't didn't drop the bombs. It was the U.S. Army. Go and protest at the U.S. Embassy and stop begging." Is that the current general sentiment in in Japan? Where does that come from? Is, is there still a lot of propaganda surrounding these issues? This is a really complex question because I think in that, that van you talk about in the, in the film. Uh, if anybody's ever visited Tokyo, um, there's a kind of these right-wing uh, black vans that drive away, drive around, um, and the driver usually, you know, blares out their opinions over loudspeakers, um, generally very right-wing. Um, and I think, in, you know, generally since the war, uh, in Japan, I suppose in middle society, um, the war's not talked about much, and so... Um, you know, on the political extremes, I suppose, on the, you know, the extreme right and the extreme left, uh, there's certainly a view about the war. Um, on, the, on the extreme right, I suppose it's that um, Japan shouldn't feel bad about anything that happened. And they're kind of trying to, I, I suppose some of those people long for the glory days of Imperial Japan. Um, on the other side, uh you know, people um, are really open about the fact that, you know, their own government, as you said, led them into the war. Um, but in the middle ground, I think mostly it's unspoken, um, even to this day. Um, and I think in some ways, pe many people are afraid to talk about it because uh, opinions can be so charged uh, about, about the war and what the legacy of the war is. Why do you think it's important that we formally acknowledge the wrongdoings of our past? And what, what does the state have to lose by acknowledging these victims, do you think? I think, uh, it, do you mean specifically in the case of Japan? Yeah, or more yeah, broadly? yeah, no, I yeah. do mean specifically in the case of Japan, which I know speaks to more broader issues. I mean, I'm... I, I, yeah. You know, looking at through Australian eyes, I, I was even making drawing parallels between, um, you know, the atrocities against our Indigenous people, and there's a there's a currently there's a Europe Commission happening, which is um, starting in Melbourne, but it's the first step to formally 
documenting the injustices experienced by First Nations people here under the hand of colonisation. Mm. Um, and it's just a documenting of an unacknowledged history and a step toward formally acknowledging our past and mo- moving forward. So, yeah, this film, your film, definitely speaks beyond its borders. Um, but I guess if, we, you know, specifically speaking about Japan, what does the Japanese state have to lose by acknowledging victims? And I know that will speak broader as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. I actually thought about those same connections with Australia and our own history when I was making it, actually. Um, but I think, uh, well, I mean, first of all, the, like the survivors uh, who are now extremely old, anybody with a living memory of World War II is, you know, essentially in their late 80s or 90s now. Um, uh, and they they all know that you know, they'll, they'll all be gone in the next few years. There'll be no living survivors. And so um, by any means possible, they want to kind of secure a place in the public memory and acknowledgement of what happened. And I think they're deeply afraid that uh, if they don't leave something concrete behind, that um, the memory of these things will fade away as if they never happened. And I think the reason that they think this is, and I think it's important, is that um, essentially, um, well, there's a quote at the beginning of the film um, from the Czech writer Milan Kundera, um, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And I think for me, this is the central issue. If the, if the Japanese government can a- acknowledge what happened, then it's a way of them taking responsibility for what happened because these are man-made disasters they're not acts of god and i think also for the u.s government i mean i hope that when people watch paper city in the u.s they'll also um reckon with their own government's actions um you know too often from the american side it gets explained away in terms of uh, military strategy and the necessity of bringing the war to an end but I think you've got to look really, really hard at, you know, the mass killing of civilians. That's the, you know, by, the yes. By, yeah. That's the thing that, that shines through in your film is the human cost to civilians and that they're just caught up in these things. They, that they don't, prop, a lot of them don't properly understand at the time. Um, one of the subjects in your film, I think it's Hiroshi Hoshino remembers the canals of Tokyo being so badly clogged with corpses that the river had stopped flowing. Such was the devastation. And in the cleanup, he, him and his classmates, I think he's 14 at the time, you can correct me, um, they were ordered to fish these bodies out by military police. And, and it, it just struck me that the Japanese military treatment of its civilians was as dehumanising as that of the U- US military actions as well. How did Mr. Hoshino's personal account help help to deepen your understanding of the firebombing and of, of war at large? I think, um, you know, when he... Uh, yeah, you, you're correct, he was 14 at the time. And... Um, uh, you know, some of what he told me, including stuff that's not in the film, really at at, at his age, he, I mean, at 14, I guess you're a junior high school student in Japan. But at the time, even, you know, everybody was kind of conscripted into the war effort in some way. Um, and kids, 
didn't attend many classes. Um, and if they did, they were mostly propaganda classes or learning how to fight with bamboo spears, all that kind of stuff. Um, but they often had to work in factories during or after school hours, you know, making ball bearings or parachutes or things like this. So even before the, you know, the actual bombings or, or the devastation of the last six months of the war, like there was this slow grind during the war years and, and everybody was had to be part of it. Um, so I think I think this is why um, initially after the attacks, you know, he, he talked about walking through the city the next morning, you know, stepping over over bodies or corpses on the street as a 14-year-old kid. And he, ta- he told me about the anger he felt towards the US. But I think over time that was replaced by, I suppose, anger towards the Japanese state because after the war, um, you know, and after all these years of propaganda fed to the people, um, the government essentially said, you're on your own now. Um, and people that had lost everything, their, their families, their homes, um, they, they've never given, been given a cent to kind of rebuild their lives. I think over time that, that, that anger among survivors has really grown towards their own government's actions at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and there's um I felt that like there was a, there's also this this fear of you know as you mentioned running out of time these people are getting really old these survivors there's a um there's a scene where um I think it's it's also um Hiroshi Hoshino that's holding a photo of that of the bloodied 5-year-old boy that young Syrian boy Omran Daknish who became you know, a symbol of civilian suffering in the city of Aleppo in 2016 after the Russian airstrikes. And um, I guess the feeling that you're trying to, I mean, I presume that's a photo that you gave him for that scene. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And, and what was your, you know, I don't want to presume to know what your, your intention was, but what were you trying to communicate there? Well, I, like I'd known, I'd known from what survivors had said that even though, in, in this specific case, they're um, campaigning um, about the memory of the Tokyo firebombings, that more broadly, what they really are concerned about is um, the, the involvement of civilians in war more generally. So um, I just thought by giving Mr. Hoshino the photograph that he just start to talk make those connections because he told me about them before but yes. obviously using using something like a photograph is it's more uh, i suppose cinematic or you know visually has more impact well that's um, that's why he sees himself in that boy um he, he said that literally yes. yeah yeah that's right yeah. um oh, sorry i should say to listeners too if you've just tuned in i'm speaking with um adrian francis about his feature documentary paper city which is screening as part of this year's melbourne documentary film festival um you've woven some really amazing archival footage into the film too, Adrian, which gives us a brief glimpse of Tokyo before and after the devastation, as well as some rare archival footage of the bombing itself. How did you manage to access what I imagine to be US military-owned footage, was it? I don't know. Where did you get it from? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, there's a little bit of stuff uh, in the aftermath of, of the bombing, especially, um, you know, civilians, sleeping in the street, sleeping rough, that kind of thing. Um, that that footage we got from NHK, um, which really has the only kind of uh, moving image footage 
before and after the bombings. Um, but at the beginning of the film, there's some pretty harrowing footage shot right above Tokyo and you can see the city burning below um, and these kind of explosions of fire. Um, and they were shot by the US uh, and that's really the only footage, surviving footage of the attacks, because certainly nobody on the ground was able to shoot anything. People, I mean, people were so poor they didn't have cameras. But um, uh, the U.S. military archives has that stuff, but that that footage is all really in the public domain now. Um, but it, it's the only thing that really exists of, of that night. The yeah. the traditional Tokyo houses. Um, were of course made of paper, which I assume is where the title of the film comes from. Um, but what bigger themes does the paper metaphor refer to? Because it props up in a few different places in the film. Yes. Yeah, well, I think that for me, it had a, a few associations. I mean, one, as you say, was that the at the time, essentially all buildings, very few buildings were made of concrete. So most buildings were made of wooden paper, certainly houses. And so the civilian areas that were bombed, uh, I mean, these were incendiary bombs. These were fire bombs that were designed specifically to to most efficiently burn these houses down. Um, And in the Utah desert, there was a, 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 it was called Dugway Proving Ground. And this is where the U.S. built a little... um, a Japanese village and over years they you know they made bombs burned down the houses rebuilt the houses uh changed the mix of the the bombs um you know the napalm kerosene and eventually they settled on on the ones they used on March 10th um but yeah that that was one thing the wooden paper houses but another thing for me was every time I met survivors they seemed to come with some kind of paper to help them convey their story, um, uh, like paintings, uh, you know, uh, scrolls with the names of dead civilians, photographs, their own t- uh, testimonies written down. Um, it, it, you know, it really struck me that paper is a way of, you know, of course, recording and passing on memory, um, but almost as if they, they were saying to me, like, you know, look, this really happened. You know, it's not just me. Like, look at this. Um, but I think the thing about paper is that it's it, it's fragile, um, and I think that's why they're campaign, campaigning for something concrete, uh, like a dedicated memorial or a, a peace museum or something that will be left behind after, after they've passed away. Yeah, they're, they're wanting something in stone. Um... This is a universal story of trauma, of course, as we've said, and of war, but it's also very specific to Japan's history. As a non-Japanese filmmaker, did you have any difficulties with access within the country and, and were the, did the subjects of the film feel comfortable in trusting you with their stories? Or perhaps that was a freedom to having a foreigner come in to document their stories and histories given that the government won't acknowledge them? I think you're right. It was uh, certainly when I, as soon as I met, these survivors they were completely open and i think it's again because they feel that perhaps within japan they haven't been listened to um and there's a scene early on um with one of the survivors um michiko kyoka and uh we kind of exchange uh, i exchange business cards with her 
or name cards. Um, and that was really the the moment we met. We 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 met just at that moment, and she, you know, she said immediately, you know, come to my house anytime. Um, you know, this is a ninety one year old woman. She's like, you know, come over. I'll tell you my story. You'll be most welcome. And I think that was their attitude. And she mentioned specifically that, you know, Japanese filmmakers aren't coming to tell their their story. And I think for for Japanese filmmakers, it's a little more complex. As I said before, the legacy of the war is such a fraught issue here that, you know, in a way it's easier for, uh, I suppose, a semi-outsider like me mm. to to tell the story. Yeah, and I, I saw that there was quite a few Australian funding bodies behind this film, including Screen Australia. Was there any investment from Japan? Well, I mean, most of our finance came, I'd say the majority of our finance came, as you said, from Screen Australia and the uh, Melbourne International Film Festival Premier Fund. Mm. Um, but we also did some crowdfunding um, and that came, I, that was an international campaign, but I think that a majority of the um, funds we raised came from people in Japan, um, often quite old people. You've been living in Japan for about 15 years now and you studied filmmaking here in Melbourne at the VCA. Um, do you plan to continue making documentaries as, as an expat or can we see you making films closer to home in the future? What's the plan for Adrian Francis? <laughs> That, that is an excellent question. I I mean, I, I would love to make something else here, but uh, in Tokyo, that is. Um, um, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating place to be. And I think, you know, you can, even if you're, you know, you lived a whole lifetime here, you, you, it's a kind of unknowable place in a way. You know, it's so big and deep. Um, so, Certainly, I'd love to make more stuff here, but I, I somehow I'd like to have a project that would tie Australia and Japan together in some way. Uh, maybe something I could shoot in both places. Um, yeah. Well, I hope you but find no, that I, I'm connection. I'm not sure right now. <laughs> I hope you find that Thank connection, you. Adrian. I've been speaking with a, uh, director Adrian Francis about Paper City, his first feature-length film about the survivors of the 1945 firebombing of Tokyo. Paper City is currently screening as part of this year's Melbourne Documentary Festival, which is happening right now online at mdff.org.au. And you don't even need to be a Melbourneian to experience it. You can watch it right now if you wish. Let's face it, you've watched all there is to watch on Netflix, I bet. Um, um, so why not watch some quality local content and expand your mind? Uh, you've been listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR with myself, Lisa Kovacevic. Tonight we chatted with Finnish director Hugh, um, Yuho Kusuman about his new film, Compartment Number no. 6, which is currently unlimited, uh, soon to be wide national release, and fellow Finnish director Miko Mulilati about his film, The Woodcutter, which is screening as part of this year's Scandi Film Festival, which is happening Australia-wide. Um, I should say goodbye to Adrian. Sorry, I didn't even let you say goodbye. <laughs> that's okay goodbye <laughs> goodbye <laughs> um, you can catch up on the show and previous episodes at rrr.org.au or via the primal screen podcast thanks to andrew delaney for stepping into panel the show tonight and to luke lay who edits the podcast version of the show thanks for listening to primal screen a weekly radio show airing monday evenings on triple r Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 